Jude, verse 14. Jude, verse 14. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you. Uh, you can grab that and uh, open up to, to the text with us. If, if you need some help finding Jude, uh, if you go to the front of the Bible, there, there's an index, and uh, you should find, find it easily from there. When you find Jude 14, uh, go ahead and bow your head. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, There are so many of us that are in different states at this moment. Um, some of us have, have been very busy because of the weekend. Uh, some of us have tried to avoid the main roads because of the weekend. And so we're, we're just glad we were able to make it this morning. Uh, Father, some of us are, are longing to hear a word from you. Some of us are just here because we're supposed to be. And God, I, I pray that you would warm the hearts of everyone here. That you would bring us to, to you. God, you are a consuming fire. And we are asking you to awaken our lives. Warm our hearts to where we, we see you for who you are. God, help us to see you in your majesty. Help us to see you in your might. Help us to see you as glorious, as the creator God, as the, the loving God, as the sustaining God, as the God who we want to bow down and worship. Father, help us see the depths of your love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to heed the warnings from Jude today. Help us to, to be discipled by his encouragement. And God, help us to love your mercy, to extend your mercy, and to stand steadfast in your mercy. Father, we ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, I don't want to make any implications by sharing this, by starting my sermon off with this, um, but sometimes it's tough being a parent, and sometimes it's, it's especially tough when you see your children guilty of something, and they won't confess it. There, there have been moments in our lives, and, and I don't, I'm going to share this as, as broadly as possible so that you don't know who's being implicated, because I, I never want to use my children as a negative illustration. Um, but, you know, sometimes you find handwriting on desks or other pieces of furniture, and you know who the handwriting belongs to, right? Like, you know how your children write, and... They can still look at you and say, wasn't me. Maybe it was the other one. Maybe they wrote like me to try to get me in trouble. Are you serious? Right? 
I think oftentimes God sees this in us. When we sin against him and we try to do what, well, I can implicate these two. Adam and Eve, at the first sin, when they ate from the tree, right? Eve ate the fruit, but Adam was standing right beside her. And we know that because what did she do? As soon as she ate it, she handed it to him and he ate as well. And then God comes to them. And he goes to Adam first because Adam was the spiritual leader of that home. And God says, what happened? And Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. Right? So God goes to Eve. What happened? Well, it was the serpent. Right? We, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Right? Guilt is, it's, it's, Guilt is when you've committed the offense and you know, you know that you deserve judgment. Shame is when a a culture or, or a people puts pressure on you to either not do something or to make up for something that you've done. We need to make sure that we understand that what what Jude is talking about, what we have been talking about over the last few weeks, what we're going to kind of tie together today, we we won't finish this until September 17th, but we're going to handle two paragraphs this morning. But Jude is not trying to shame anyone into anything. Jude wants us to understand that we are all guilty before God, all of us because of sin. And there is this false teaching that has taken root in this church that Jude is writing to. And there are are people in this church who have bought into the false teaching. And there is real, true guilt hanging over them. And Jude is encouraging this church to repent of this, to turn from this, to go away from the sin and come to God. And he's also trying to get them to the point where they understand that it is, it's not just their job to personally repent, but that the church needs to work together to repent of the false teaching, to, to drive it out of the church, and to get back to what God has called them to do. So let's jump into the text. Verse 14. Remember, these are the folks that Jude has been talking about. Um, We've talked about them for the last two weeks, uh, that that they they are bringing false teaching into the church. They're using it to try to get personal gain out of it. Last week, we, we saw where Jude compared them to, uh, well, he compared them to some, some not good folks, right? He compared them to Korah. He compared them to Balaam. And he compared them to Israel when Israel uh, rebelled against Aaron and Moses. And so he continues this teaching about these folks in verse 14. And he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. So we have to stop here and we have to deal with this. Um, This is the only actual quote from another source that Jude uses in his letter. And it is a quote 
from a book that is not in your Old Testament. In fact, it's in a book that is not in our Catholic friends' Old Testament. It's from a book that our Jewish friends would say, yeah, it's an interesting story, but it's, it's not scripture. This quote comes from 1 Enoch, and the only copy of 1 Enoch that we have in full is actually written in Ethiopian, right? That country in Africa that's sort of south of Israel. So we know that this book has existed. It existed during Jude's time. It probably existed in Hebrew and, and in Greek, but the only copy that we have is in Ethiopian. And this is the book that Jude decides to quote. And not only does he decide to quote it, but he says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, right? So he's saying that Enoch was speaking on behalf of God here. And so there's a couple things that we have to deal with. The first one is, why would Enoch quote from something that is not the Old Testament? And I think the way we answer this is to remind ourselves that this isn't the only place in the New Testament where a quote is made during teaching that doesn't come from the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the people in Athens, he twice quotes from philosophers that were Greek, not the Old Testament. And in Titus chapter 1, when Paul is reminding Titus of how hard it is to pastor and preach to the people of Crete, right, that little island that's in the Mediterranean where, where Titus was serving as the pastor, he quotes a Cretan philosopher, and it's a pretty, it's not a very flattering quote, right? He calls the people of Crete lazy and gluttonous, um, but Paul wants to remind Titus of the job that's ahead of him. And so we see multiple times in the New Testament where something, someone is quoted that isn't, from, that isn't a teacher from a book in the Old Testament. So this isn't, it's not necessarily new. It shouldn't, it shouldn't really raise our hair too much, except for the fact that he says that it was prophecy. Now we need to remember who Enoch was. Enoch is mentioned in the book of Genesis Enoch is the one who lived, it it says that that he lived, or he walked with the Lord, and one day the Lord took him, right? So there's only two people in, in existence that have never died, Enoch and the prophet Elijah. And so Enoch carried with him this this spiritual status that was respected by the people of Israel. And of course, we don't know anything about Enoch except for what's mentioned in the book of Genesis. And so these books rose up that claimed to be the teachings of Enoch so that the people of Israel could know him better. And of course, the people of Israel did not consider these books a part of their Old Testament or a part of their scriptures, which became our Old Testament. Um, and the church has never, Catholic or Protestant, considered first Enoch to be scripture. But Jude is trying to make an argument here. And he's trying to make an argument against people who question the authority of the Bible. And so some commentators think that maybe they held to the authority of 1 Enoch. Maybe they thought 1 Enoch was actual scripture. And that's a possibility, but we don't know that from the text. I think what Jude is trying to do is to prove that his enemies are wrong. And to do it not just from the Old Testament, which is is what he's done the whole letter, right? Right? 
By, by using these different examples from the Old Testament, he's proving that his enemies are wrong. And so here he goes outside of the Old Testament to show that they are off base. And so what does Jude quote from Enoch? Well, it starts in verse 14, but it continues into verse 15. And so here's what it says. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. And so this is, this is literally looking forward to Jesus' return with the angel army to do battle. You know, what we read in the book of Revelation. To do battle against Satan and his army. But in verse 15, it continues to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jesus is coming with this ten thousands of holy ones, his, his angel army, and he's coming to do two things. The first one is to execute judgment on all. Now, don't read that word execute in some sort of retributive sense, like, like, like Jesus is coming to judge everybody and to bring uh, hell and damnation on everybody. That's not what he's saying. When he says to execute judgment on all, it means that Jesus is coming to look at the fruit of everyone who's ever lived. And friends, this should, it should confront our hearts it should arrest our minds. It should bring concern because here's the reality. You and I, we have not lived a life that we can measure up. If it's only on our fruit, if it's only on what we have done, our thoughts and our actions will condemn us. You know this. But what makes us free is the blood of Jesus. What makes us innocent before God when Jesus comes to execute this judgment is the fact that some of us have confessed our sinfulness. Have, our hearts have been humbled by God and we've seen our need for a savior and we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus, trusted in his perfectly obedient life, trusted in his death on the cross, and trusted in his resurrection. And the Bible promises that for those who are humbled, for those who repent, for those who believe, that God made Jesus to become our sins on the cross. That Jesus stands in our place he is condemned on our behalf. And all of his righteousness is given to us. It's what the reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. On the cross for believers, we gave Jesus our sin and he gave us his righteousness. So when we are judged for what we have done, when, when God comes to execute judgment on all, when he looks at you, Christian, he will not see your sin. He will see Jesus' work on your behalf. He will see the bloody cross and the empty tomb. That is something to rejoice in. 
But that's the first thing that he does. And the second thing that he does is to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. Listen, you're going to see the word ungodly quite a bit in this verse. Do not miss the emphasis that Jude is making here through this quote from Enoch. He's going to convict all of the ungodly. Right? He's going to bring conviction. To bring his wrath and his judgment upon them. And he's going to do it for all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And he's also going to do it because all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Friends, Jude wants the false teachers in this church, not our church, but in the church that he's writing to, he wants the false teachers in that church to feel the weight of this. That when false teaching happens, it is ungodly words being spoken about God. And not only does he want them to feel the weight of that, but he wants those that are following the false teachers to hear this and understand this. That if you buy into false teaching, if you buy into teaching that pulls you away from the cross, that takes you away from the resurrection of Jesus, if you follow teaching that points you somewhere other than Christ crucified for sinners, that condemnation stays over you too. It is not just for the false teachers, it's for the false teachers and their followers. And friends, this is what makes the time that we live in such a glorious thing, but also such a scary thing. You have access to great Bible teaching. If you have a smartphone, you could download world-class teachers from around the world. But you also have access to some of the worst, some of the most damnable false teaching that is out there. You have to have a discerning ear. You have to know God's word so that you can hear teaching and say, this is good gospel fruit or this is, these are lies from the pits of hell. Friends, I cannot do that for you. You have to know. So we go to verse 16. And Jude, he doesn't want us to miss who these people are, right? He, is, he gave us a bunch of descriptions last week. He's going to continue the descriptions today. It's going to start in verse 16, but it's going to continue later on. And so he says, these false teachers, these are grumblers, right? They grumble. They don't joyfully follow Jesus. They find things to complain about. They are malcontents, right? They are, they are not content with who they are and what they have within the kingdom. And on top of that, they don't want anybody else to be content either. They want to stir up strife among the people of God. They are following their own sinful desires because their heart is not captivated by the gospel. Their heart is captivated by sin. They are loud-mouthed boasters. Now, friends, I want you to hear me clearly here. It is not a sin to boast. It is a sin when you boast in something other than Jesus. Think about how many times Paul says in his Gospels that he wants to boast in the Lord. He wants to boast about Jesus. He wants to brag about his Savior. Do not forget what Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount. He said that we are cities set on a hill. 
We are, we are lights to the world. We are salt for the earth. We are meant to brag on the Lord. But when the bragging goes from the Lord to us, like, look at how great I am. Look at how smart I am. Look at how well I serve. These are the problems. And they are showing favoritism to gain advantage. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know what's happening here. This is, I'm going to spend more time with these people because they have more in their bank account. I'm going to pray more for these folks because I can get more out of them. I'm going to recognize these people, give them the best seats in the building, give them the best seats at the table because I can get something out of them. The first part of our main idea really begins here. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down. Jesus is bringing justice against unbelievers. Jesus is bringing justice against unbelievers. These people are going to feel the wrath of God. These people are going to see not the good parts of God's justice, but the scary parts of God's justice. Friends, each one of these descriptions should catch our attention. And they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to drive a wedge further between us and God, or they're going to pull us to the cross and say, thank you for what Jesus did. So we go to verse 17. Jude begins this paragraph with the word but. Some of the best moments in scripture are when biblical authors write the word but. God's judgment is over evil people, but you must remember, beloved. Right? Friends, how often are we told in scripture to remember? How often do the biblical writers say, remember who God is, remember what he's done, remember his promises? So Jude wants this church to remember. He wants them to go back to God's faithfulness throughout the centuries. And of course he says, you must remember beloved. I want you to notice how many times in this paragraph the word beloved and love is used because Jude wants the church that he's writing to to know that they are loved. They are loved by Jude and that's why he's writing this. The reason he's calling out false teachers is because he loves the church. And not only are they loved by Jude, but they are loved by God. The cross and the empty tomb are all they need to see to know God's love for them. So he says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> it's important to remember what the word apostle, there's two ideas carried there, Okay. An apostle is quite literally a messenger. And so I think Christians today have the gifting of apostleship in the idea that there are some of us that God has equipped for cross-cultural ministry to go around the world telling people about Jesus. But that's not the way that the word apostle is being used here. 
Jude is talking about the early leaders of the church. And we know there were requirements for apostles from the Gospels, from the book of Acts, from, from what Paul wrote. To be an apostle, you had to be a part of Jesus' ministry for those three years on the earth. And there was one special exception, and his name was Paul. Paul was made an apostle, not because he was with Jesus for three years, but because Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and called him to a special task. And so, I don't want to say that all people that claim to be apostles today are false teachers. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, no one today should claim the title of apostle, okay? That, that, is, that is a title and a position that ended when John died, because he was the last apostle to die, all right? So we still have pastors, we, we still have deacons, um, but, but we don't have apostles anymore. But Jude tells us that these apostles, they predicted what would come. And we see this in Peter's letters, we see this in John's letters, and we see this in Paul's letters. If you go to verse 18, here's what Jude said. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So the first thing we need to note in these two verses is that Jude wants us to understand that in the last times, scoffers and false teachers will come. And Jude is talking about his moment when he's writing this. We believe he wrote this about 20 to 25 years after Jesus died, came back to life, and ascended into heaven. So if Jude thought he was in the last times, how much more so should we think we're in the last times? And it doesn't, listen, thinking that you're in the last times doesn't mean that Jesus is coming tomorrow. He might, but it doesn't mean that. We are, I mean, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, we are to be ready at all times for Jesus to return. We are to be ready. We are to live our lives as if Jesus is coming back tonight. But Jude says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. I already told you that, that Jude is going to continue describing these people to us. And so they are scoffers. They are ones who hear the word of God and they do not pay attention to it. They are the ones that, that um, James describes in his letter when he says, some of you hear the word, but you don't do it. And you're, you're like someone who looks in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what they look like. Friends, scoffers doesn't mean that you literally scoff, right? It doesn't mean that you're hearing this sermon and you're just like, ah, oh my goodness, right? That's not, a scoffer is someone who hears the word of God, but does not obey it because they think they know better. They think they're wiser than God. They think they understand things better than the Holy Spirit who used men to write down these words. So they're scoffers. They're following their own ungodly passions. We've already connected that in the previous verses, it is these who cause divisions. False teachers cause divisions. It would be so much easier if we all stuck to the biblical truths that we see in Scripture. But we have people who don't want that. They want something else. And so they come in with their new teaching and they divide the body of Christ. They are worldly people. 
How many times does Jesus tell us in the Gospel of John, and how many times does John tell us in his letters, do not love the world? He doesn't mean don't love your neighbors. He doesn't mean don't love your family members and your friends who are not believers. He means don't love their sin. Don't love the things that they love. Don't turn their idols into your idols. And then he says they're devoid of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not working in them. Remember last week when we talked about how these false teachers, they, they respond They respond naturally to everything rather than responding by the Holy Spirit's leading. Judah's saying, you will know these people. You will see them and you will understand them. We go to verse 20. But you, beloved, right? You're loved, don't forget that. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. <clears throat> now again, this faith that, Je- that Jude is talking about is not your trust in Jesus. The faith that he's talking about is that faith that's been handed down to us by the apostles. The teachings that we hold dear. The gospel the truths about the church, the truths about evangelism, the truths about scripture, all of these things. That's our most holy faith. He says, build yourselves up in it. Use what God has given you in his word and through the preaching of his word and through the discipleship of the the church. Use those things to build yourself up. Use what God has given you through his word and through his people to give you a foundation, not just of your faith, but of who you are. And then he says to pray in the Holy Spirit, right? But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think we have to get super charismatic here, all right? I don't think what Jude is saying that, I don't think he's saying you have to speak in tongues or anything like that. I think he's saying what we've been taught all through, all through the New Testament. That when you pray, you pray to the Father, you pray in the name of Jesus, and you pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. You come to God truthfully. You pray to God from where you are. You come to him not trying to hide things, right? You come to him confessing sin. You come to him in worship. You come to him with your needs and with the needs of others. But you do it knowing that the Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you, and guiding your prayers. Knowing what Paul says in Romans 8, that um, even when we don't know what to say and we just groan, even then the Holy Spirit can interpret those things for the Father. That's what Jude is saying. And then in verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself, plant yourself, abide in, do not move. 
What does he tell us to keep ourselves in? In the love of God. He's not saying keep yourself in the discipline of God or keep yourself in the law of God. He's saying keep yourself in the love of God. And the love of God is shown to us where? On the cross of Jesus. Keep yourself at the foot of the cross. Remind yourself of how much God loves you, of what he has done to save you from your sin. And he says to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what leads to eternal life. Now listen to me, friends. We believe, all right? We believe that when God saves you, he saves you. It is his work in your life. But we also believe that only true believers will persevere to the end. And so when Jude says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's not saying that you have to wait until your dying moment to see the mercy of God. What he's saying, though, is that, your, is that his mercy in your life will keep you on that path. His mercy in your life will keep you faithful. His mercy will bring you to the end. And then we see this connection between Jude and Zechariah 3. We see where this talk of mercy and this talk of, of garments being stained and being saved out of the fire. Verse 22, Jude says, and have mercy on those who doubt. I love that. Friends, I know there are many of you who doubt. You doubt the gospel. You doubt the goodness of God. But you come to that place where you know that he's really all you got. And I know it's hard. I know it feels dangerous to doubt those things about God. But can I tell you that if you know that God is all you have, even if you're doubting, that's all you need, right? And so Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. And then he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Remember, it's the work of the Lord in the high priest Joshua that keeps him out of the fire. It's the work of the Lord that changes his garments from stained to clean. And so Jude is not telling us here to go and somehow through our power save them and change them. But he's telling us with the gospel, with this faith that has been passed down and that we're holding on to, with those things, we can go to people who are following false teaching. We can go to the unbelievers in our midst and we can go to unbelievers outside of these walls in the community and we can share the gospel with them. And through the power of the gospel, God will snatch them out of the fire and he tells us to show mercy with fear. So we are merciful to sinners, but we still fear God. We do not come loaded with judgment and hatred to those who live differently than we do and think differently than we do. We come loaded with the gospel. We come loaded with mercy. 
We come loaded knowing that God saved us and he can save them. And there's nothing that separates us except for faith. So we show unbelievers mercy, but we do it with fear, not fear of them, but fear of God, knowing that mercy that doesn't get to the gospel is no mercy at all. Mercy that says it's okay if you keep living in sin, God's really not that mad at you, that's not mercy, that's false teaching. So we extend mercy, but we do it with a healthy fear of God. And then he says this, and this is, this is kind of the hard part to understand. But he says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Friends, <coughs> not only are we to hate sin, but we are, hate, we are to hate things that lead us to sin. Remember what Jesus says? If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. Now, Jesus, thankfully, is using hyperbole, right? Or there'd be a lot of people without eyes and, eyes and hands right now. But that reality that anything that leads us to sin is not good for us. Jude is calling us to kill some things in our life. Friends, if HBO is causing you to sin against God, cut it off. If there are certain friends who cause you to sin against God, take a break from them. If there are certain places or situations that cause you to sin, stop putting yourself in those places and those situations. A part of repentance is cutting off the sources of our sin. So not only do we see that Jesus is bringing justice against unbelievers, but we also see that he is bringing life-giving mercy to his beloved believers. Life-giving mercy to his beloved believers. We'll talk about that more in a second, but the real question here is, so what do we do? How do we respond? I think we respond with mercy and steadfastness. We respond with mercy and steadfastness. Friends, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is full of mercy. He is full of life and he is full of love. Do not forget that he is the image of the invisible God. So when you see the way with those that are proud, he brings judgment and harshness. With those that are humble, he brings love and mercy and good news. Friends, the call here from Jude and from the life of Jesus is you need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Stop dancing around with pride. Stop being okay with not being okay. Humble yourselves before God. See your need for the gospel. See your need for Jesus. For those of you in here today, friends, that are unbelievers, or maybe you're sitting on the fence, 
your thoughts and your actions make you guilty. You know this. Your conscience confirms this. But your unbelief keeps you guilty. It's not just that you do the wrong things, you say the wrong things, and you think the wrong things. Because of your unbelief, you are separated from the source of life and mercy and love. You need to turn from your sinfulness. And you need to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Christians, we need to get really good at repenting of our rebellion. And we need to see our sin as rebellion. Stop calling them mistakes. Stop calling them hang-ups. Call them what they are. Cosmic treason against the Lord of the universe. Repent of your sins and trust in his merciful love. Know that he loves you and know that his love for you brings mercy. It brings not judgment, but grace. So mercy leads to grace. Not getting what you deserve leads to getting what you don't deserve. Rejoice in that, Christian. And then stand fast in the love of Christ. Stand fast in the... In, in the when temptation comes, stand fast. When mockery comes, stand fast. When hatred comes, stand fast. But don't stand fast in some sort of obligation that you have to God. Stand fast in the love of Christ. Plant your flag at the cross of Jesus. Church, let us be rich in mercy for sinners and doubters. Let us be rich in mercy for sinners and doubters. Let us preach the gospel. Let us hold fast to Jesus. But, and let us, let us encourage the doubter. Let, it help th let us help them doubt their doubts. And let us help them see that Jesus is the only sure anchor for their soul. And for sinners, let's be, let's bear the gospel. Let's, let's bring balm to their wounds. Let us not be lily-livered, right? Let us not be afraid to call sin, sin. But let us do it with such mercy and grace that they hear the good news of Jesus and are not turned off by the truth. Church, we also must train our hearts with the truth. We must, we must dive in together into Scripture. And friends in the public square... When we go back to work tomorrow, or maybe, you know, for some of y'all that are going to be working the fair or the, the festival today, right? Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy givers are mercy getters. Live your life in the public square with mercy. Friends, we can respond to sin and sinful people in one of two ways, okay?
we could be a, a prison warden, right? Who tells them, well, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this to make yourself clean. The only problem is they will stay in prison. So they can do good work after good work after good work after good work and they will not find freedom. Or... We could be a, a chef who puts before them a spread of the gospel and says, come and eat. Come and find joy. Come and find life. Come and find freedom that is only found in Jesus. That's what God is calling us to do. To present before people the good news of Christ. And can I be honest with you? Some people are going to see the presentation of Christ like you're trying to be a prison warden, like you're trying to, to hamper their freedom. But those whom the Holy Spirit is working in, they will see the good news. They will see what the psalmist says when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's... Let's present the meal of the gospel to as many people as we can and see God change lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. Father, I pray that we would, we would be a people who loves you, loves your word, loves, loves the good news of Jesus Christ, and we just can't keep it to ourselves. Father, let us be merciful people who are quick to point to Jesus. Let us be gracious people who are quick to, to help whenever it's needed. Father, we, we want to change the Hatch Valley for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's the first, first Sunday of the month, so it means that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, if you're not a believer,